Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. We hear it all the time. Fake news. But I met a man who would challenge my notion of how far a fabrication could go. Hey, Lao Chen, Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 281. Available now in North America on digital and video on demand, and on September 3 in Australia and New Zealand is Ask No Questions, a documentary that dives into the shady circumstances of the 2001 Tiananmen Square self-immolation incident, where Chinese officials state that several members of the spiritualist movement Falun Gong set themselves alight. Journalistic documentary filmmaking at its finest, Ask No Questions is an important and absolutely relevant film that needs to be seen by everyone. Joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the co-director and producer of Ask No Questions, Jason Loftus. Jason, I thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. So excited to hear about an Australian date. Um, I, like When I first came across this film, uh, it was just through... Um, uh, social media, you know, people were talking about. It. I was like, oh god, I wanted to see if this is available to us. To find out it's finally coming out September three um, is such a is, su- is such a great thing. I'm sure you're going to be very excited to be able to share this film with people down under. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've been uh, we were just starting our whole festival run. Premiered uh, in Park City at Slam Dance in January and had a number of others lined up. We were really. It's a film that is a conversation starter. I feel, and that's what's important to us about it. And uh, we were looking forward to sharing it with audiences. So a lot of that was upended with the, you know, with the pandemic and and all of that, uh, the aftermath of that. And so uh, we're kind of territory by territory able to open things up now with mm-hmm. our distribution partner. And uh, ex- really excited to be able to have people see the film and uh, and share it with them. So Jason, you've worked on movies before, but mostly it's been like in a producer capacity. Um, Ask No Questions is really kind of like the first time you've like directed a film. You, you are co-directing with Eric uh, Pitticelli. Um What was it about this subject that made you really want to, you know, jump behind the lens and direct um, uh, as opposed to just stay in a producer capacity? Yeah, it's a good question. I have kind of moved sort of from the outside in, executive producing, producing, um, and that. And Eric kind of comes at it from the other angle. It was also a first time directing for him. He came at the story from, uh, well, he has an editing background. He's uh, he edited a number of uh, of films before, and so for both of us, we're kind of coming to 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 this role from the two different directions. And as a result, we kind of complement each other in that regard. Um, the other aspect here was that I had a personal connection to the story. It's something that. I was part of the Falun Gong community, um, you know, prior to this event happening, prior to there being a persecution in China, I came across it sort of in my pursuit of, uh, you know, meditation and Eastern philosophy, these interests that I had in high school. And um, that's what introduced me to the world of Falun Gong. And, you know, a couple years after I came across it in high school, 
It was banned in China. It, we were being told that the Chinese government said it's dangerous and it has to be eliminated and there's this crackdown and people are being thrown into prisons and labor camps. And so that's sort of my whole introduction to this world. The self-immolation was really a key turning point in the Chinese government's anti-Falun Gong campaign. And it was sort of a moment where a lot of the, the sympathies that had existed uh, in the Western media um, really evaporated because mm. up to that point, there was all these, you know, really kind of heroic protests taking place in Tiananmen Square. People were raising banners just saying, hey, my practice is something good. It shouldn't be banned. And people were understandably, the human rights groups and media were very sympathetic to that. Um, but then all of a sudden, when you see figures on fire uh, in Tiananmen Square and it's uh, alleged to be a result of, of this practice, that immediately sort of tainted the message. And it really changed how Tiananmen Square was used as a sort of a center for the protests and the resistance. It, it really evaporated after that, as did a lot of the sympathetic coverage in the media. So I kind of remembered that from being within the community, and I didn't have an explanation for it. I mean, I came into Falun Gong with, uh, you know, very limited knowledge of Chinese politics and what was going on at the time. And, and so my introduction came kind of from within this whole situation over a number of years. Um, and I could say, at least from the beginning, the self-immolation didn't add up with anything that I had experienced in Falun Gong or anything that I had seen in the community. It just seemed completely at odds with my experience of it. And so there was definitely this something doesn't add up type feeling, but at the same time, it was very difficult to explain. Like if it's not what the Chinese government had claimed that it was, then why are people setting themselves on fire? Like something clearly happened here and what would motivate people to do that? And, uh, and it was just kind of this unanswered question. And so for me, I was happy when people kind of, it faded from the news in the West. Like I, I remember the day that it hit the news. It was on the front page of the local newspaper where I was in Toronto. And uh, I mean, I remember friends questioning me, like they knew that I was doing this meditation and they're like, well, are you gonna set yourself on fire? Like what's up with this, right? Mm. And so when it passed into kind of the rear view mirror as news frequently does in the West, it's a news item for a while and then it kind of disappears. I guess part of me was okay with that because I didn't have to worry about people wondering whether um, you know I was going to do something like this. And but it was really meeting these people coming out of China um, more recently and seeing how they were deeply affected by this years later and throughout um, the last couple of decades in China that um, you know I realized that this is a this is not a passing story. And also meeting um, the main character that we feature in this film, Chen Rei Chang, who he he's this man who kind of works inside the state-run media in a senior role, but then at the same time, um, you know, was imprisoned for his own association with Falun Gong. And this guy is adamant that the event was staged. So that for me was meeting him. I, I just felt like, okay, there's more to this story. And I, and that would kind of, that's what kind of inspired me to get into it and to revisit these events. You mentioned in the documentary that as soon as this self-immolation incident happened in 2001, that people, especially within the Falun Gong um, community were very suspicious about it because it goes against core tenets, core philosophies of 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 the of the movement of the religion. If you could explain just really quickly yourself being a practitioner of Falun Gong, what do you mean by that exactly? Is there is there kind of like is it kind of like Western uh, religion in regards that there's kind of like a catechism or there's like uh, commandments, etc. Um, within the Falun Gong movement that that states that anything regarding uh, suicide or anything of that nature is um, is forbidden. Yeah. So taking life is, I mean, I guess you can find a lot of similarities with other Buddhist traditions, but I mean, 
to be honest, it's it, it, in this regard, it parallels a lot of um, faiths that you would be familiar with. I mean, um, any form of killing is off limits, and yeah. in, in turn, and there's a there's life is is taught to be something very precious, and the the principles overall of Falun Gong are um, they're based on three tenets, which is truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. And so, in the midst of the persecution. Um, you know, practitioners really run into, like when Falun Gong was banned, a lot of what they're running into is that they continue to say, look, I've, I've benefited from Falun Gong. I value this principle of telling the truth. So now the government is denouncing it. I'm going to speak out. And so that's where a lot of the kind of the, the protest or the resistance comes from. But it was never with any element of self-harm because there's a belief in Falun Gong that, well, first of all, self-harm is, is something that's off limits. You're creating karma. You have to treasure your body. I mean, the whole purpose of Falun Gong, the idea, it has these kind of slow-moving exercises that look something like um, yoga or tai chi. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that as you improve your character, like your your moral quality in line with these principles of truth, compassion, and tolerance, or forbearance, you're also building up your your kind of uh, energy. It's called gong, and so you do the exercises so that your body and your mind are refined together. And the whole purpose is to kind of transform and elevate your body, right? So that it kind of forms this higher energy. That's the kind of the metaphysical idea, you know, as I as I grasp it. So. To say that that's what Falun Gong is about, but then you would take your body and destroy it and burn it uh, in self-sacrifice and that that was driven by Falun Gong. It's not only that it's like a, it's a reach, it's the entire opposite direction. So that anyone who was familiar with what the idea of Falun Gong was supposed to be about would immediately say, this doesn't make any sense. But in China, what happened when they cracked down on Falun Gong is that they also rounded up all of the books. So Falun Gong's teachings became banned. They rounded up the books. They had burnings of the books in public. Um, they also um, blocked the internet. And so people in China, they would not be able to pick up a copy of uh, a Falun Gong book and kind of cross-reference it with the accusations that the Chinese government was making about the faith. And I think that combined with kind of the fear factor and the intimidation of the repression that was happening makes it really difficult for people to kind of challenge that narrative. But for anybody from the inside, it's very obviously, you know, completely at odds with with the Falun Gong ideas. You mentioned before that at that time you didn't know much about uh, Chinese politics. I, I imagine, uh, especially in regards to the to the CCP's really tight control on information. Uh, and that time, the internet was really starting to kind of kick in the gear and social media and such. Um, once you do- explore those waters, once you see exactly what type of um, reaction the Chinese government had towards anyone who questioned their um, narrative on things. What's your reaction to that? Is it fear or did that kind of drive kind of like an inner sense of um, uh, curiosity uh, for you? Do you mean in regards to like pursuing this story here now or kind of at the time? Just at the time because I'd imagine that when finding out that there could be repercussions for delving into that story that maybe perhaps you didn't want to go any further into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... It's a good point. I mean, at the time, I think it was a matter of, yes, there. it's an interesting thing because the media faces the same thing. And in the film, we talk with a number of journalists who, um, to be frank, I mean, they were – 
they were courageous at times in getting the Falun Gong story out there. They yeah. risked arrest. Um, they evaded, you know, they were in police chases to try and get footage out there to show the protest that was happening. Um, but the, the self-immolation kind of changed that and, and deterred them. For me, I think it was a matter of, I felt a sense of injustice because regardless of what had happened with these individuals, it was definitely not representative of the group. And so that was something that right away, it's like, hold on, you're holding this up as like, look, if we don't get rid of Falun Gong, this is all going to happen. And that I knew wasn't true, but it was very, it was frustrating because I felt helpless to be able to do much of anything to counteract that message. And I didn't know how to get to the bottom of it. So really time just kind of passed, but it's when I met Chen and we hear his story and how major of an influence, like the self-immolation story, just to put a little color on this, like the effect that it was having on people, they were using this inside the brainwashing center. So they mm-hmm. would arrest these people and they would say, you're not free until you give up your beliefs. And they would force them to watch the self-immolation. And then they would force them to watch other people who had watched the self-immolation who are then you know, saying how bad Falun Gong is. And they're trying to get you to absorb these ideas. So it became part of a, of a transformation, like a forced confession and conversion, um, this incident. It was really kind of a linchpin in the whole campaign. And Chen in particular, he disagreed with it. And he had the insight of having worked in manufacturing state propaganda, and he'd withstood torture uh, in, in, in because he would not accept the Chinese narrative. So seeing this and seeing him come out even recently, you know, just in the last few years, um, made me realize this story never went away. And maybe this person, Chen, is a jumping off point where maybe now I do have an opportunity to look at it more, to find out what really happened. And, um, you know, to kind of uh, pursue it more than I was maybe able to at the time that it first took place. What's the timeline in regards to making of this movie? Would it be the last few years you've been, um, you and Eric have been working on it? Yeah, so it's a couple years of uh, production work on it. And there were some interviews that we were able to source from others that were even a couple years before that. So there's people there who've kind of contributed to the story um like the idea that something was amiss with this whole incident was out there but um really pursuing this story was a couple of years of concerted work and the thing is with with chen we were introduced to him as someone who had a lot of insight in the chinese propaganda and had also been imprisoned um, for his position on the anti-falun gong propaganda in china and that was interesting to us but it wasn't until we met with him that we realized how remarkable his own personal story was like how he had connected with senior officials in the in the chinese um you know propaganda and 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 state television apparatus and um, you know, and what he had endured and what they had done with his family. And he didn't see himself initially as like a central character. He was just there. Uh, he wanted us to know, you know, what had happened. He wasn't there saying, hey, here's my own personal story. It was just that we would get these tidbits of it. And we started to realize it's his own personal story that was rather remarkable. And so it was a follow-up interview and another, another interview. And we would kind of peel back the layers of the onion with his story. And that's what ended up sort of becoming the heart of the film was his own um, personal journey through this. When did you first hear about Chen? I mean, is that just someone who you kind of like heard about through circles, the Falun Gong circles there in Toronto? Yeah, so um, we had a researcher who had contacts in New York. And at the time, we were just kind of looking more broadly at the subject of the propaganda and the role that it plays in a human rights context. You know, we didn't have this envisioned as a personal narrative so much. And we came across this guy. And so we spoke to to him first from that standpoint. 
Uh, but then they were kind of going through the interview and we're saying, oh, here's there's a story here um, with regards to his connection to this particular incident of the self-immolation. And that's where it, it kind of blossomed from there. And it's very clear that when listening to Chen that he's a man of principle, he has a very strong constitution. Um, I mean, he went through some really, I mean, physical, psychological torture, um, but it, if, from the hands of the CCP. Um, now that he's away from there, he, I, I imagine he's living in Toronto, um, uh, Jason? No, he's, uh, we, we found him in New York. New York. And uh, I'm, in, I'm in Toronto. Eric, who directed with me, is also um, based here. And uh, the other thing to mention with that, too, is that I kind of came from within the Falun Gong community, and Eric had a background in human rights films, but mm-hmm. was kind of new to the Falun Gong world. So that also created this kind of like push and pull dynamic between us where we, you know, we're trying to keep each other honest, trying to get the story as objectively as possible. And I feel like some of the uh, the proximity is helpful because I there was things that I would notice from having been within the community that would help when we're trying to put together a story that is very confusing and remote and, uh, you know, sort of, sort of uh, shrouded in mystery. But at the same time, um, there's an element of distance that Eric brought, which is helpful as well to kind of always question the assumptions we're making and all of that. So there was a great dynamic between us to really uh, craft the story and, and maintain objectivity. So Chen is now in Brooklyn. He survived what the CCP tried to do to him. Um, you approach him, you and Eric do. What is his reaction? Is he hesitant to go back to that time and speak out against the CCP, or is he really raring to go and wants people to hear his story and what he thinks happened in 2001? So there's no hesitation from him, and he's very much an open book. I, I think the thing with him is that he didn't see his own story. He didn't see the importance in his own story mm-hmm. in terms of the... Uh, you know, I mean, this is a man who also worked in the news. He's not unfamiliar with identifying story, um, but he's a humble guy. I, I think there's a lot of humility there. And he wanted us to know what people were suffering in China. He wanted us to understand how they were crafting the media and what he had noticed. But he didn't think his own tribulations were were very important. It was interesting. He doesn't come to it with an axe to grind, despite all that he's been through. And to be honest, that's one of the most remarkable things about him and and what attracted us to him. I asked before about the timeline in regards to the making of the movie, uh, because in the last four or five years, the term fake news has been really kind of relevant. Um, And it's kind of interesting to me watching this documentary, how that term just kept popping in my head, popping in my head, popping in my head in regards to the CCP, how they kind of uh, presented the whole kind of self-immolation event to the world. Um, when you were making this movie and everything was going on in regards to media and politics in your neighboring country over in America, I don't know what it's like in Canada, so I can't uh, comment about that, but are you kind of looking at that situation? And while it's not as nefarious of what's, what's happening in 2001, what still continues to happen in China, is there still concern from you about the... Uh, approach by a lot of people in media in regards to the, telling the news and compared to um, putting forth a political uh, commentary posing as news? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, definitely part of what we saw in the film as relevant was 
it, it's sort of like maybe the most egregious example you could conceive of fake news. Mm. And definitely fake news is it's everywhere, right? And so, and that's, and it's such a big issue in the, in the last few years. So we definitely saw it from that lens. I don't think we anticipated all of the other sort of relevant aspects that would emerge as we were working through production. Like we didn't imagine what was going to take place in, in Hong Kong and how Hong Kong would be portrayed in China and how the media would be part of that aspect of it. We didn't perceive what was going to be happening with the Uyghurs in Northwest China at the time of the release. We're now, you know, we're talking about a million or more people in internment camps, again, compelled through similar tactics to renounce their beliefs, you know, and facing similar um, measures. So there are, unfortunately, very current relevant aspects that, that this film deals with. But I do think you touch on something in sort of the news. It's like you can't you can't say what's happening in China is comparable to what's happening uh, in terms of in, in any other context in the US or anywhere else in terms of, um, you know, how nefarious it is, as you mentioned. But at the same time, I think it's a cautionary tale. When you see, um, you know, uh, the integrity of, of journalism erode to such an extent and where there's so much absolute power and uh, and a lack of, of alternative viewpoints uh, and and the and the power is controlled in, in authoritarian hands that don't necessarily have the public good at heart, but rather um, sort of their own political ambitions. It has it definitely has a very dangerous um, potential to it. And and I think that's the thing that you can take away. You can't compare it and say, hey, we're just like this, but you can look at it and say if we don't want to be like this, like, let's see where these kinds of things lead. Let's be aware of what we see there and, and, uh, and sort of see it as a warning. In the documentary, there were moments in the, in the, in the film that got very real for you to, to use the term. Um, the family of your wife was approached by the, the Chinese government and she had to pretty much distance herself on social media from them. Um, your job, you—I mean, you, as well as a filmmaker, you're a gaming developer, right? So you had a job, uh, the, a game that you're working on that was really impacted by your working on your documentary. Um, now, post the documentary being released, was there any type of more kind of uh, repercussion put onto you or onto your family or your wife's family, uh, similar to what we saw in the film? So we kind of learned something through the film and you learn something by spending time with these people, right? So, you know, first off, I mean, that example of like Tencent, you know, large media company going to publish our game, we'd invested a bunch in working with a, a dubbing studio and hired Chinese actors and all this stuff. And then in the midst of this game, it's pulled off the store shelves. It really brought home what we were hearing from the journalists that we were trying to speak with in China. You know, the, the Western journalists who were stationed there and they were like, oh, this is an important story, but I can't speak with you because I, I still need to go back there to write my next book and all this type of stuff. It's like it hits home. It's like those threats are real. And so whenever someone says, hey, like, why are you so afraid of upsetting the Chinese government? Just it's true. Those, those threats are real. Um, but sort of in the aftermath, one of the things I learned is that, you know, look, nobody suffered more through this whole thing than Chen. So they messed with my publishing a game. Um, definitely a financial impact for me. Um, you know, I employ people here. It's not something we were pursuing for sure. But at the same time, like Chen's entire life was taken away. You know, it, it, he's he's separated from his son still to this day. You know, his his wife was pitted against him. It's just this, it's an awful story what he went through. But at the same time, his kind of, his belief in what the right way to handle this was was never shaken 
And and also you see his family members, what ultimately succeeded in helping him to get released was their efforts to sort of shine a light on his plight. And so they were speaking with the media, they were speaking with government representatives, and it seems the Chinese eventually took notice and he was freed and he was able to, to you know, to come to where he is now in the U.S. And so the thing you take away after meeting with these people is that um, – if you if you're affected by the pressure and the threats, then you're giving more power to the to the bully in that situation. And the more that no matter what you're going through, you're kind of willing to shine a light on it and expose it. It actually dissuades them from uh, from doing more. So I'll give you an example. Like when we were doing our release uh, or sorry, our premiere in in Park City. You know, part of slam dance, the whole culture of it is like you you do this like poster wars on the streets in, in, in Park City and you're trying to draw attention to your film right. and you're trying to stand out in the crowd. Right. And so what we did was we we printed up like an eight foot tall uh, letter from a fictitious Chinese ministry. It was the the Ministry of Hollywood Affairs. And it basically warned Hollywood like not to watch our movie <laughs> that was playing, you know, at, at slam dance at these times. And we had uh, our uh, associate producer, Kevin Koo. Uh, you know, he's ethnically Chinese. He dressed up in a, a Chinese cop outfit that we were able to get from a, uh, a production company over here. And, you know, we have a Chinese cop on the street telling people not to watch our movie and basically just embracing the fact that China doesn't want you to see this and, and kind of poking a little bit at that whole idea about why we're afraid of China. And, you know, in the end of the letter, it says at the bottom, like CC NBA owners and people got that it was a joke, but it was a hit. Like we had crowds of people who were like, you know what, I'm going to go see that film. And the funny thing was we actually had the local police who came to us uh, partway through just before our last screening at, at Slamdance. And they said, you know, the um, the counterterrorism unit had contacted them and wanted to make sure that we were OK. Wow. And I said, I said, look, we're good. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and he said, but just in case they went and contacted the Chinese authorities and wanted to make sure that they weren't causing us any trouble. And I actually haven't mentioned this to anybody, this story, but I was like, you know, speaking out and kind of embracing um, whatever tactics they might use, you'll find that there's a lot of people who rally behind that. And you also take the power away from the person who wants to kind of scare you into, into not acting. Mm. And, and it was really some, a lesson that I took, like when we got that notice, um, after our game was pulled and, and the, and our contact over at Tencent, they said, Oh, actually it was in both cases, even with the public security bureau contacting my wife, they told us, you know, we know what you're up to, but they don't, they don't tell you exactly what you've done wrong. Yeah. And it's really, it's really that it has an amplifying impact when they can tell you, you know what you've done wrong. Cause that obviously you know more about what you're doing than they do. So you're like, what do they know? What do they not know? And you can start self-censoring in so many areas and doing so many things to avoid upsetting them. And that's giving them more and more power. So I think it was an important lesson for us seeing what the victims of abuse had gone through in China and learning that you have to, if if you're really going to stand by those principles, you have to stand by those principles at all times. And that's how you, it's not easy and there are consequences, but that's how you take power away. And I think as part of that, we've encountered maybe less disturbances because they know whatever they do with us, um, it's going to end up like we had someone trying to hack into our social media accounts and we posted it right away online and said, Hey, you know, if we if we start posting uh, or sharing like news from the Chinese uh, state media, let us know. Right. And so you just embrace it and then I think you remove the incentive on their part to do that. I think that's a, a really great attitude there, Jason. I really do. I think because I think a lot of people could kind of be cowered into uh into silence um sometimes if they didn't have the kind of uh 
the, um, the, the courage to kind of stand for their convictions. So congratulations to you in regards to that. Um, my final question here, there's a moment at the end of um, Ask No Questions where um, one of your interviewees um, s- says something about a sea change. And she cites examples more as, re- as recent as the Soviet Union, etc. That sometimes things just happen overnight, and there are, there are changes. I don't think anything like that would, will happen with, in re- regards to the, the Chinese Communist government. I think they seem to be so powerful, um, especially in regards to how they're able to infiltrate uh, the entertainment industry, movies, games, etc., to spread their propaganda. Um, but I did. But there's one thing that's happened over the last few months that I'm sure hasn't had an impact on you uh, in regards to the release of this film, especially, and that's COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that the whole thing that's going on now with the coronavirus, that that could be the trigger, that could be the turning point in regards to um, people's relationships with China, do you think that could be the emphasis of the sea change that um, the person was talking about in your documentary? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where um, we definitely had a really strong response after the coronavirus. It was like um, because they could see how the Chinese government handled it, right? The Communist Party was you know, essentially uh, arresting or detaining and threatening doctors who were trying to blow the whistle. There were sort of citizen journalists who were disappearing from the streets. And they could see that this lack of freedom was affecting people in China. And then by extension, as this thing started to spread around the world, the, the, the way that they had handled it initially definitely contributed to what ended up becoming a global pandemic and affecting all of us. So I think a lot of people have seen how the Chinese have handled it. And there's sort of a, a layer of that, that image that is put forward seems to have been removed. I, I do think it's an important po- a time for people to kind of make a decision about that, because what I also see is, you know, as the world is all struggling with this pandemic, everyone's economy has been impacted, um, you know, everyone's understandably fearful about what's going on in the world. Um, the Chinese have become more brazen in some of their um, approaches to different issues that they might have been more, uh, you know, sensitive uh, towards how they're perceived, like in Hong Kong, you know, they're just basically completely, uh, you know, doing away with the whole one country, two systems, uh, you know, that had been in place and that the world had said they were going to hold them to. Um, you know, there's there's also what's going on in, in northwest China with the Uyghurs that is now very transparently, it's very hard to argue what is going on there. But I think it's an important time for people to question whether they're going to stand up uh, because at this point, um, you know, it's there's less confusion about the nature of the regime, perhaps, and the challenges and the threats that it poses internationally. But at the same time, uh, everyone is feeling perhaps a little bit fearful um, because of the uncertainty in the world. But I think it's at these points that we also need to make sure that we don't lose sight of our principles, despite all of the different challenges and and uh, concerns that we have in front of us, because. Uh, you know, if China's asserting itself and, and affecting the rights of people in these areas, um, it's important for us to speak up for them now because otherwise that just continues on and it, and it may eventually affect us again. 
So for everyone listening, Ask No Questions, available now in North America on digital and video on demand, will be released September 3 in Australia and New Zealand. You can find all the information at asknoquestionsfilm.com. There, this shows all the different places where you can watch a film, iTunes, Vimeo, Google Play, Amazon. Um, it's, all, it's all there. Um, I really recommend people check out the website. It's really informative, actually. It's got a lot, a lot of different uh, links. It's got all the places you can you can release dates. It's, it's, it's a fantastic um, website's been put together for the film um, Jason I thank you very much for uh, talking to me in regards to your film I know you and I have been playing uh, uh, e- uh, trading emails the last couple of days we finally got together to sit down with the film I just want to say congratulations to you and Eric with the film and um, hopefully the, the release um, keeps, keeps going ahead um, around the world and a lot of people see this film because I think it's really important so congratulations to you and thank you for your time thanks Matt it was all worth the wait pleasure talking to you